Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Again, I almost forgot our uh, intro that we have used. <laughs> we're both, guys, we're both very tired. Yes. Friends, we're very tired. We're both mothers. You know, this is soon going to turn into an all-parenting podcast. No, it's not. We would never subject you to that, honestly. Please please don't think um, that we would do that. Uh, but, uh, Jewel, how are you doing? Just just excited for for spooky season right mm, yes. yes it's coming it's coming quickly and uh what's yeah, baby isaac out, gonna like, be for halloween so baby isaac is uh he is an avocado <laughs> uh yep that's one and he is very cute in that and he knows he's cute in it mm. you know like he knows like you put it on him and he's like like charming and and you know adorable and then he is also the stay puffed marshmallow man <laughs> yeah so i am very excited and the little hat comes with like an elastic band that goes around his his chin and his head is so fat and his cheeks are so ch- chubby that the little elastic band like barely hangs <laughs> onto his face <laughs> it's like stretched to with an inch of its life and it's like cutting off the circulation to his nose so um <laughs> That will probably not be a multi-hour uh, yeah. outfit. It will be a put him in it, take a take couple a of picture. photos, mm-hmm. and then let him just kind of relax for the rest of the night. So that's that's what we're doing. But we will be handing out candy with a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. That's the cutest in thing. In our home, if, if all goes well. Um, but speaking of spooky, uh, today my topic is about, well, not really spooky, but uh, definitely mysterious uh, is all about the Nancy Drew books. Excellent. So, Julia, what do you know about the Nancy Drew? I know I know a little bit about Nancy Drew. Mm-hmm, I will mm-hmm. not say that I've read every Nancy Drew book, but mm. I know a lot about um, kind of the backstory of it. So I, I would love to hear your take on it. And I, I'm sure our listeners would too. Oh, of course. Yeah. So um, I read a little bit of Nancy Drew when I was like a preteen. Mm-hmm. I was reading Nancy Drew. I was, I'm like, I love mur- murder mysteries and mysteries in general going way back. Uh, but I would read Nancy Drew and I also read the boxcar children, which was so ridiculous <sighs> because the boxcar children were a bunch of do-gooder, you know, brown nosers who you know, never did a wrong thing in their lives, except I guess live in a box car very comfortably, may I add. But anyway, that's also very Bobsy twins too. The very, yes, it's very, like, mm. yeah, they're always respectful to adults and they love each other very deeply, but not in a weird way, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I, of course, as many children do transition to Agatha Christie. So, um, anyway, I only read a handful of Nancy Drew books because even, as like a 10 year old, they felt very like old fashioned, like mm-hmm. 1950s. Well, sure. Um, and I didn't realize that Nancy Drew has spanned the length and breadth of the 20th century. So, so here we go. So Nancy Drew, she is a, obviously a fictional character. She appeared in several mystery book series, movies, and a TV show as a teenage amateur sleuth. 
So the books are ghostwritten by a number of authors and published under the collective pseudonym of Carolyn Keene, which I had no idea until I started doing the research that Carolyn Keene was a pseudonym of mul- like multiple people, mm-hmm. multiple readers. So it was created by the publisher Edward Stratemeyer um, as the female counterpart to his Hardy Boys series. So when, if you ever get the trivia question of like, who came first? Was it Nancy Drew with the Hardy Boys? It's the Hardy Boys. Um, Nancy Drew first appeared in 1930 in the Nancy Drew Mystery Stories series, which lasted until 2003. Yeah. Yeah, it's a long time. So we'll we'll uh, get into the details of that. But um, the Keen pen name is also credited with the Nancy Drew spinoff River Heights and the Nancy Drew Notebooks. Oh, I don't know that River Heights. Yeah. So um, so let's get a little bit into uh, Stratemeyer and, and mm-hmm. all of this stuff. So Edward Stratemeyer was the founder of The Syndicate, oh, which was a publishing corporation. <laughs> um, he hired writers beginning with Mildred Wirt, uh, later Mildred Wirt Benson, to write the manuscripts for the Nancy Drew books. And the writers were paid $125 for each book, and they were required by their contract to give up all rights to the work and to the maintain confidentiality so that the illusion was continued that Carolyn Keene was a real person and that she was reading mm-hmm. writing all of these books herself. Um, Benson is credited as the primary writer of Nancy Drew books under the pseudonym of Carolyn Keene. Uh, Harriet Adams, who was Stratemeyer's daughter, rewrote the original books and added new titles after Benson withdrew. Um, also involved in the Nancy Drew writing process were Harriet Stratemeyer Adams's daughters, so Stratemeyer's granddaughters, who gave input on the series and sometimes helped to choose book titles. Also, the syndicate's secretary, Harriet Otis Smith, Uh, She invented the characters of Nancy's friends, Bess and George, which we'll get into. Um, And uh, also the editors at Grosset and Dunlap also contributed to the Nancy Drew character and the storylines and that kind of thing. There were only four names back then, and one of them was Harriet. Yeah, one of them was Harriet. The other one was uh, George and Bess, and Nancy, of course. (laughs) So Nancy Drew is originally depicted as a 16-year-old high school graduate uh, but later, she's re- rewritten as an 18-year-old graduate and detective in later editions. So in the series, she lives in the fictional town of River Heights with her father, attorney Carson Drew, and their housekeeper, Hannah Gruen. As a child, she loses her mother. When that happens is very different in all the books. And mm. We'll get into that in a second. Um, her loss is reflected in her early independence. She has run a household since the age of 10 with a clear-cut servant in the earlier series, and later in the series, um, she's Hannah Gruen ends up being more of like a surrogate parent. She's not <laughs> so much like a, a servant. So as a teenager, she spends basically all of her time solving mysteries. Uh, some she stumbles upon, some begin as a case of her father's that he like kicks to her, I guess. Um, she is often assisted in solving mysteries by her two closest friends, cousins Bess Marvin and George Fane. Uh, Bess is very delicate and feminine, while George is a tomboy, which is the subtext of that is that she is a lesbian. Um, I didn't, I, that is just me, you know, editorializing, mm-hmm. but let's be real. Uh, Nancy is also occasionally joined by her boyfriend, Ned Nickerson, Ugh. who is a student at Emerson College. <laughs> Ned Nickerson is the most 1950s name I've ever heard in my whole life. Uh, Should Ned, we go down to the soda counter and uh, yeah, I love put a Ned. nickel He's in so the jukebox? Oh, Ned, he's so dreamy. <laughs> so, so Ned is described as a, of course, handsome and athletic young man. She's not going to date a dud. He you wears know. Not d- a letterman jacket. Yeah, he's not some pencil neck. <laughs> Ned plays football. 
Uh, he, of course, stands six feet, two inches tall. You know, she does. She's not going to date some five, eight guy. You know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about? No short kings for Nancy Drew. Um, he has dark brown hair and brown eyes. The most masculine combination. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, when Nancy first meets him, he is a sophomore at Emerson, which makes him a year or two older than the 18 year old Nancy in the current series. Yeah. So when introduced in the 1932 storyline, Nancy was 16. Uh, mm-hmm. But it could be assumed that Nan- that Ned was not like greatly older, but possibly three to four years. Even if he was four years, that's statutory rape, Carolyn Keene and the Stratemeyer syndicate. Well, I'm just I saying mean, you got to get married and have your babies early. Apparently, yeah, so, you're fertile at a very young age so for a very short amount of time. Is when she can get her like sleuthing out of the way, so that by exactly. 19 she can have her two you know, two beautiful two children. children. Yeah, that are blonde and blue-eyed, obviously. Um, So aside from being a good student, Ned also plays for three of his school's varsity teams. Basketball, baseball, and football, the three most American games. Ned doesn't play soccer. Communist soccer. (laughs) Um, In some stories, he pursues outdoor interests, including rowing and swimming, as well as scuba diving. (laughs) Oh, boy. It's so funny. His best friends include Buck Rodman, uh, in the earliest original stories, Buck Rodman. Buck Rodman. Um, and in revised stories and books after 1950, there's Bert Edelton and Dave Evans, who are also students at Emerson. And also, Bert and Dave also date George and Bess. Oh, well, sure. So it's Ned and Nancy and group Bert hang. and George and Dave and Bess. Uh, Ned also frequently sells insurance during the summer. He doesn't rest on his laurels on the summer. He gets a job. Um, although he has also taken a variety of other jobs because he is a capitalist. Um, when not in school, he lives with his parents, James and Edith, in the town of Mapleton. You know, Edith has a piping hot, fresh apple pie in the oven every day for her husband, James, or Jim, as she calls him. Without a doubt. Um, yeah. Mapleton is near Nancy's fictional hometown of River Heights. And Nancy also describes him as, quote, the perfect boyfriend or the best boy a gal could have in the 1930s edition. So that's boring ass Ned. You know he's boring. He has nothing to say to Nancy. <laughs> nothing. So enough with Ned. Let's talk about Nancy. So she is often described as a supergirl. So in the words of Bobby Ann Mason, who is um, also a novelist and someone who has written pretty extensively about like, um, you know, childhood, you know, mysteries and like specifically like girl mystery sleuths in, in fiction. Um, she has said that Nancy is as immaculate and self-possessed as a Miss America on tour. She is as cool as Mata Hari and as sweet as Betty Crocker. So Nancy, of course, is a well-off. She is attractive. She is also amazingly talented. At 16, she had studied like psychology in school and was familiar with the power of suggestion and association. She was a fine painter, spoke French, and had frequently run motorboats. She was a skilled driver who, at 16, flashed into the garage with a skill born of long practice. She was also a sure shot, an excellent swimmer, a skillful oarsman, expert seamstress, gourmet cook, and of course, a fine bridge player. Um, She played uh, tennis and golf brilliantly and rode like a cowboy. She also danced like Ginger Rogers and could administer first aid like the Mayo Brothers. So like she is everything to all people, perfectly quaffed. She never lacks money. 
In later volumes of the series, she often travels to faraway locations. She's also able to travel freely about the United States, thanks in part to her car, which is a blue roadster in the original series and a blue convertible in later books. She's kind of always in every story. If I mean, from what little I remember, in every story, she was always like, oh, the damn car's gone down again. I've got to go in, get under the hood, you know, like that kind of thing. She can even like <laughs> fix her car. Um, so despite the trouble and presumed expense to which she goes to solve mysteries, she never accepts monetary compensation. What? No, she not No, because she does it for the love of the game, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Girl, yeah. you gotta pay your rent. I know. Well, you know, daddy pays for her rent. Why would she want to take money from these, you know, poor people who've had their jewels stolen or whatever? Um, Although it is, it is also implied that her expenses are often paid by a client of her father's as part of the costs of solving one of his cases. So there's whenever she gets like a case kicked to her by her dad, there's uh-huh. always this idea that she is going to like be compensated at least for like her travel. Or All whatever. right. So there's a benefactor involved. Yes. Possibly. In some of the, in some of the stories at least. Um, so the story goes that in 1926, Stratemeyer created the Hardy Boys series. Um, although the first volumes weren't published until 1927. Uh, they were such a success that he decided on a similar series for girls featuring an amateur girl detective as the heroine. So Stratemeyer believed that a woman's place was in the home, ultimately. But he was also aware that the Hardy Boys books were popular with girl readers and wished to capitalize on girls' interests in mysteries by offering a strong female heroine, which is um, like weirdly progressive of him, I guess, to like, I mean, it was a, you know, he did it for the money, but Mm -hmm. it's interesting that that happened. I think even it's, uh, it's interesting that even almost a hundred years later, Mm -hmm. women will read books written by men with male protagonists, but men, uh, like for the most part do not do the same thing. No, they don't. They don't read books with girl protagonists, Mm -hmm. whether they're meant for whether, whether they're quote unquote chick lit or not, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. Um, I was actually going to bring that up, so thank you for oh. doing that. So Stratemeyer initially pitched the new series to Hardy Boys publishers Grosset and Dumlop as the Stella Strong stories, adding that they might also be called the Diana Drew stories, Diana Dare stories, Nan Nelson stories, Nan Drew stories, or Helen Hale stories. Man, he loved alliteration, this guy. So the editors at Grosset and Dunlap preferred Nan Drew of these options, but decided to lengthen Nan to Nancy. So Stratemeyer accordingly began writing plot outlines and hired Mildred Wirt um, to ghostwrite the first volumes in the series under the previously mentioned pseudonym Carolyn Keene. So the first four titles were published in 1930, and they were an immediate success. Um, Exact sales figures are not available for the year before 1979, but the 6,000 copies that Macy's ordered for the 1933 Christmas season were sold out within just a couple of days. (laughs) And in 1934, Fortune magazine featured the syndicate in a cover story and singled Nancy Drew out for particular attention with, quote, Nancy is the greatest phenomenon amongst all the 50 centers. She is a bestseller. How she crashed a Valhalla that had been rigidly restricted to the male of her species is a mystery even to her publishers. So this was an unusual kind of thing that there was a girl, you know, protagonist who was also doing the things that the boys did, like the Hardy boys Mm -hmm. did. Also, not for nothing, Nancy Drew solved mysteries just by herself. The Hardy Boys needed, you know, each other. Just saying. So the earliest Nancy Drew books were published with uh, dark blue hardcovers with the title stamped in orange lettering with dark blue outlines. And there's there was no other image on the cover. 
Um, the covers went through several changes in the early years. Nancy Drew is depicted as an independent-minded 16-year-old who has already completed her high school education. And this made sense back then because 16 was the minimum age for graduation at the time. Um, so the first four books of the series really had a good continuity. Um, there was a sense of, you know, passing seasons and time. However, this was lost throughout the series. There's changes in her hair color. There's changes in like major plot points, like when her mother died, Mm. uh, you know, her age was changed from 16 to 18 in book 31, which was the ringmaster's secret from 1953. And there was no in universe explanation. She was just suddenly 18. Um, so her, she was obviously affluent, uh, and she maintained an active social volunteer and sleuthing schedule. She even volunteered. Um, and she participated in athletics and the arts, but she's never shown as working for a living or acquiring job skills. Okay. Uh, she was neither affected by the great depression, although many of the characters in her early cases needed assistance because they were poverty stricken. Mm. Uh, but she was also not affected by world war two. Like they just don't, these major, you know, American events or world events do just don't occur to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so some crit- critics prefer the Nancy of these earlier volumes, which were the ones that were largely written by Mildred Benson. Um, she had more of like a feisty character. Uh, she, uh, she was said to be a lot like Benson herself. Okay. So she was competent and confident, totally independent, quite unlike this cardboard character that Stratemeyer had outlined initially. Um, the original Nancy is often outspoken and authoritative, so much so that Edward Stratemeyer told Benson that the character was, quote, much too flip and would never be well-received. Uh, but the editors actually disagreed. Um, but Benson also faced criticism from her next Stratemeyer syndicate editor, Harriet H- Adams, who felt that Benson should make Nancy's character, quote, more sympathetic, kind-hearted, and lovable. Uh, In Benson's words, Adams repeatedly asked Benson to make the sleuth less bold. Nancy said, became Nancy said sweetly. Mm. She said (laughs) kindly and the like, all designed to produce a less abrasive, more caring, obviously more feminine, like reading as feminine character. Like women apologizing before they say a sentence. Exactly. Like, I'm sorry, but could you give the jewels back that you stole? Like that kind of thing. I mean, if you want to, I mean, I don't know anything. Um, (laughs) however many readers and critics and everything really admired her original outspoken character. That was, that was popular with her readers. Um, so Bobby Ann Mason, who was a prominent critic of this Nancy drew character and like the, the, the Nancy of these early Nancy drew stories. Um, Mason contends that Nancy owes her popularity largely to the appeal of her high class advantages. So she's, you know, she's a girl who's rich and can do whatever she wants because she's rich. Yeah. And the whole point of the the books is that she's she is a girl that all that she has to do is is solve mysteries and crimes, right? Like she doesn't have to worry about you know if she's got a nickel to you know call her dad kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's she's just unencumbered with anything and she can just focus on being a sleuth, which you know is kind of like what these stories were like for any you know teen or young teen books like the Hardy boys too. They had all these, you know, resources at their disposal to do just, you know, solving crimes. Um, 
Mason also criticized the series for its racism and classism. I mean, it was the, like the 1930s and 1950s, arguing that Nancy is the upper-class wasp defender of a, quote, fading aristocracy threatened by the restless lower classes, which is dark. <laughs> um, she further contends that the most appealing elements of these daredevil girl sleuth adventure books are secretly of this kind. Tea and fancy cakes, romantic settings, food eaten in quaint places, never a hojo's, uh, delicious pauses that refresh, old-fashioned picnics in the woods, precious jewels and heirlooms. The word dainty is a subversive affirmation of a feminized universe. So she's basically saying the character of Nancy Drew is that of a girl who can be perfect because she was she is free, white, and 16, and whose stories seem to satisfy two standards, adventure and domesticity. But adventure is the superstructure and domesticity is the bedrock. So this whole idea of Nancy Drew being like this independent gal who solves crimes, like no other girl does this. But at the end of the day, she, you know, she knows how to cook and clean. I mean, please. <laughs> She's still a woman, you know, that kind of thing. Um, however, other ar- others argue that Nancy, despite her traditionally feminine attributes, such as good looks, a variety of clothes for all social occasions, and an awareness of good housekeeping, She's often praised for her seemingly masculine traits. She operates best independently. She has the freedom and money to do as she pleases. And outside of a telephone call or two home, she seems to live for solving mysteries rather than participating in a family life. So it's not like in every book she came home and she was like, but dad, I'll make you a roast. Like that kind of thing. It was, (laughs) she was, you know, she was an independent character for that time period and what was expected of even fictional women. Um, so the Nancy Drew books were revised in 1959 at the insistence of publishers Grosset and Dumlap to make the books more modern. Um, so although Harriet Adams felt that these changes were unnecessary, she oversaw a complete overhaul of the series, as well as writing new volumes in keeping with the new guidelines laid down by Grosset and Dunlap. Uh, many other changes were relatively minor. The new books were bound in yellow with color illustrations on the front covers. When you think of a Nancy Drew book, you think of like the yellow title, right. like The Secret of the Old Clock. And mm-hmm. then like a kind of stylized image of Nancy like with a, a flashlight, yeah. like mm-hmm. creeping around a corner kind of thing. In a, an immaculate dress. Oh yeah. And an immaculate dress and her hair perfectly quaffed. Um, in these uh, books, she was 18 and her mother was said to have died when Nancy was three rather than 10, which is what, when the mm. age her mother had died in the earlier books. Um, and then there were other, some other small changes. Housekeeper Hannah Gruen sent off to the kitchen in early stories. She became less a servant and more of a mother surrogate. So Harriet Adams continued to oversee the series after switching publishers to Simon and Schuster um, until she died in 1982. And then after her death, Adams' protege is next Nancy Axelrad and Lila Wen and her three children oversaw the Nancy Drew books and other Stratemeyer Syndicate series production. In 1985, the five sold the syndicate and all rights to Simon and Schuster, and then Simon and Schuster turned to book packager Mega Books for new writers, which is like the saddest, Ugh. most depressing Mega Books. Um, the books continued to have the characters solve mysteries in the present day while still containing the same basic formula and style of the books during the syndicate. So, in 1985, as the sale was finalized, Simon and Schuster wanted to launch a spin-off series that focused on more mature mysteries and incorporated romance into the stories. So they did a little test in the final two novels before the sale, the Bluebeard Room and the Phantom of Venice were used as kind of like backdoor pilots for the new series. Interesting. Yeah. So these books read as a really very different from the preceding novels of the past, oh, I don't know, 55 years. <laughs> so for example, The Phantom of Venice from 1985 opens with Nancy wondering in italics, am I or am I not in love with Ned Nickerson? Oh. 
And so she begins dating other young men and she acknowledges her sexual desires. For example, an excerpt reads, quote, I saw you kissing him. You don't have to apologize to me if some guy turns you on. <gasps> Nancy Drew. And then Johnny doesn't turn me on. Won't you please let me explain? So the next year, Simon and Schuster launched the first Nancy Drew spinoff, which was titled The Nancy Drew Files. Okay. So the Nancy Drew character of the Files series got kind of mixed reviews amongst fans mm. of Nancy Drew. Um, some, including sex-positive feminists, contend that Nancy's character becomes more like Mildred Ward Benson's original heroine than any version since 1956. Others say that it it's increasing incorporation of romance and kind of like this dilution of like pre-feminist moxie. Um, one reviewer noticed Millie or Mildred Ward Benson purists tend to look askance upon the file series in which fleeting pecks bestowed on Nancy by her longtime study, Ned Nickerson give way to lingering embraces in a jacuzzi. <laughs> oh. What year is this? Not a, not a jacuzzi, 1985. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So the cover art for the files titles, uh, such as Hit and Run Holiday from 1986, it's very funny. Uh, they reflect these changes. So Nancy is all often dressed provocatively. She's in short skirts. She's in shirts that reveal her stomach or her cleavage, or maybe she's even in a bathing suit. What? Um, she's often pictured with an attentive, handsome boy in the background, like looking at her. Like you can, you can totally imagine those 80s cover, like <laughs> teen covers, where the girl is like, pulling her sunglasses off of her head and like looking like she's running to the beach and the boy in the background with like a surfboard, like where are you going, Nancy? Like that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So she uh, frequently appears, you know, aware of and interested in the boy. Uh, the books place more emphasis on character relationships with Nancy Drew and Ned Nickerson becoming a more on off couple and both having other love interests that can span multiple books. Uh, the end of the book, Murder on Ice, strongly implies that Nancy and Ned engage in sexual intercourse. Or at the very least, they go into a jacuzzi together. The jacuzzi again. I think a jacuzzi in the Nancy Drew books it's is just coded. a metaphor. Yeah, it's just coded. Uh, Nancy also becomes more vulnerable. Uh, she's uh, often chloroformed into unconsciousness. Jesus. Or she's defenseless against chokeholds. Uh, furthermore, the minor thefts of the original books are replaced by murders and murder attempts, and Nancy is frequently in mortal danger. So in an extreme example, in the book Deadly Doubles, the fate of an entire nation and millions of lives are at stake. A character is tortured and strangled off screen, and Nancy and her allies are nearly killed on five separate occasions. <sighs> so the Nancy Drew books really like accelerate through the 80s in terms of like storylines. <laughs> Um, the Files also launched its spinoff. There was a crossover spinoff series with the Hardy Boys titled The Super Mystery Series, which began in 1988. And these books were in continuity with the similar Hardy Boys spinoff, The Hardy Boys Case Files. Okay. So they had their own spinoff, and mm -hmm. then there was like some overlap. So in 1995, Nancy Drew finally goes to college after, you know, 70 years or whatever. <laughs> Um, and the Nancy Drew on campus series. So these books read more similar to soap opera books, such as the Sweet Valley High series. Mm -hmm. That was my jam. Yeah, Sweet Valley High. Uh, I read only a couple of those, but I wasn't allowed to read them because they were they were about relationships and, oh. you know, necking. <laughs> Who says necking? What am I talking about? Um, <laughs> so the on-campus books were focusing more on romance plots and also centered around other characters. The mysteries were just kind of subplots and the whole thing. Uh, by reader request, Nancy broke off her long-term relationship with boyfriend Ned Nickerson in the second volume of the series on her own from 1995. 
Um, similar to the file series, reception for the on-campus series was also mixed, with some critics viewing the inclusion of adult themes such as date rape, quote, unsuccessful. Um, one critic commented that the series was more soap opera romance than mystery, and that Nancy comes across as dumb, missing easy clues she wouldn't have missed in previous series. Oh, okay. The series was also criticized for focusing more on romance than on grades or studying, which why <laughs> of course you're going to focus on romance. Like who wants to read a whole chapter about how Nancy studied her algebra homework, you know? <laughs> and also one critic stating that the series resembled collegiate academic studying in the 1950s where women were more interested in pursuing their MRS degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so in 1997, Simon and Schuster announced a mass cancellation of Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys spinoffs, except for younger children. And the file series ran until the end of 1997, while both the super mystery and the on-campus series ran until the beginning of 1998. So in 2003, publisher Simon and Schuster ended the original Nancy Drew series and began featuring Nancy's character in a new mystery series, Girl Detective. So the Nancy Drew of the Girl Detective series drives a hybrid car. She uses a mobile phone and she recounts her mysteries in the first person, which was not always, which was not the case. Is she writing a blog post? I know, right? It's basically like, you know, she, I am, she, I am <laughs> her friend on, you know, AOL instant messenger. So since the series is set in the 21st century, several technologies and pop culture references obviously exist. Mm -hmm. um, many applauded these changes arguing that Nancy had not changed at all other than learning to use a cell phone. Um, others praise the series is more realistic. Uh, Nancy, these commentators argue is now a less perfect and therefore more likable being one whom girls can more easily relate to. Mm -hmm. She's a better role model than the old Nancy because she can be emulated rather than this, you know, prissy, you know, right. robot perfect. of perfection. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, however, some mostly fans really lament these changes They They see her as more of like a silly airheaded girl in this series whose trivial adventures discover. Like there was one that was discovering who squished the zucchini in 2004 is without a trace. Who and that is not a metaphor. That is like literally someone who like stepped on a zucchini. Not um, someone who so slammed a dick in a car door. <laughs> you know what? From here on out, that very specific thing is going to be called squishing a zucchini. <laughs> Watch out, everybody. We're taking the lexicon by storm. Um, also, the character is a heroine of a series of graphic novels begun in 2005 and produced by Paper Cuts with a Z. Uh, the graphic novels are written by Stefan Petruca and illustrated in manga-style artwork by Sho Marasi. The character's graphic novel incarnation has been described as a fun, sassy, modern-day teen who is still hot on the heels of criminals. So she's been updated, um, there was a 2007 film uh, with Emma Roberts. Yeah, I don't. I do not remember this movie coming no. out, but it. I guess it did fine. Mm -hmm. um, there was also a non-canon novelization of the movie, uh, which was written to look like the older books. Mm -hmm. So they like did little, you know, crossover there. A new book was written for each of the Girl Detective and the Clue Crew series, which deal with a mystery or a, on a movie set. Um, in 2008, the Girl Detective series was rebranded into trilogies with a model on the cover, and these mysteries became kind of deeper, with the mystery often spread across three books and multiple culprits. Um, however, these trilogies also met with negative fan reception due to Nancy's constant mistakes, shortness Ooh. of the books, and lack of action. Uh, sales began slipping with this, and in 2010, Simon & Schuster cut back from six Nancy Drew books per year to four books per year, which still seems like a lot per year, i got to be honest with you. <laughs> And then in December 2011, they finally announced that the series was canceled along with the Hardy Boys undercover brothers. 
Uh, so with the sudden cancellation of the Girl Detective series, the Diaries series began in 2013. And this series is similar to its predecessor in that the books are narrated in the first person. Nancy is still absent-minded and awkward, and references are still made to pop culture and technology. So the longest, this is like now trivia purposes, the longest running series of books to feature Nancy Drew is the original Nancy Drew series with 175 volumes published between 1930 and 2003. She also appeared in 124 titles in the Nancy Drew Files um, and became the heroine of the Diaries series. And the Diaries series um, was the reboot. So the Nancy Drew franchise has been adapted into other forms of media with varied success. As of April 2020, the character has been adapted into six feature films, three television series, four television pilots, 33 video games produced by the brand Her Interactive, and two different comic book series. Um, film and television adaptations of the character have been met with mixed reviews, uh, while the video games by her interactive have often been lauded. Um, there is a gritty CW reboot of Nancy Drew, which is currently running. Um, it definitely has like the same sort of feeling as like, um, what is it? Uh, Riverdale, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so that's something that is on right now. I had no idea until I looked it up because it's not like I'm watching a lot of CW. But um, Nancy Drew continues to be popular worldwide. Uh, there are at least 80 million copies of the books that have been sold. The books have been translated into over 45 languages. She is a cultural icon. Nancy Drew is cited as a formative influence by several women, from Supreme Court Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Sonia Sotomayor to former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton and former First Lady Laura Bush. Feminist literary critics have analyzed the character's enduring appeal, arguing variously that Nancy Drew is a mythic hero, an expression of wish fulfillment, or an embodiment of contradictory ideas about femininity. So in the end, many people agree that at least part of Nancy Drew's popularity depends on the way in which the books and the character combine sometimes contradictory values. Um, for over 60 years, the Nancy, Nancy Drew series has told readers that they can have the benefits of both dependence and independence without the drawbacks, that they can help the disadvantaged and remain successful capitalists, that they can be both elitist and democratic, that they can be both child and adult, that they can be both liberated women and daddy's little girls. And as another critic puts it, Nancy Drew solved the contradiction of competing discourses about American womanhood by entertaining them all. So that is about Nancy Drew. Girl detective. Um, Can I give you detective. some bonus info here? Please give me some bonus info. So this is your sidebar is about her interactive. So yes, I handle her interactive Inc records at the strong national museum of play here in Rochester, New York. Get out. <laughs> I know. I was just. I'm just adding some color. Oh, I'm just adding great! Some color. Uh, nice. Um, so I want to tell you a little bit about that company because it's pretty Please interesting. Do. So Her Interactive was founded in 1995. It was actually a division of American Laser Games. 1995. At the time, there really weren't any major computer game designers in the U.S. that were concentrating on games for girls. So mm. they thought, like, great, we have a whole untapped market. So Her Interactive did research studies and they had like focus groups of adolescent and teen girls to kind of figure out what girls wanted in a computer game. So, okay. you know, picture it. It's 1995. Um, girls are saying that they were dissatisfied with violence. They didn't like there mm. were like secret rules and like secret things you needed to find. 
in order to win a game. Um, and they didn't care for like the storylines that were happening in like PC games at the time. Interesting. So mm-hmm. they came out with um, with two titles. One was called Mackenzie and Company and one was called The Vampire Diaries, which would later go on to you would later learn more about the vampire diaries in the in the oddies but um so basically oh God, like weird. those things came out and then they did acquire the rights from Simon and Schuster to develop a Nancy Drew mystery computer game series so their plan was basically like a clear understanding of what would be rewarding for girl gamers um, while they were like faithfully adapting the Nancy Drew canon. So their first title came out in 1998. It was uh, Nancy Drew mm-hmm. Secrets Can Kill. And then later there were some other ones in the 1990s. What's most interesting about her interactive is, um, again, it's the 90s at this point. They were using yeah. an in-house teen advisory board to make improvements wow. to story ideas and characters. This is this means like they were changing skill levels and directive statements and and giving you second chances to fix critical errors, you know? Wow. Like so mm-hmm. that, you know, oh no, you messed up, you're dead, you lost all your progress. Like they would give yeah. you a second chance to do these things. So basically, Nancy Drew in the her interactive games is that smart, adventurous, like mm-hmm. independent character who's, you know, she's not She's not ditzy. She's not absent-minded. She's not making those yeah. mistakes. Um, and so these games were targeted at ages like 10 to 15, mm-hmm. though the games do have broad appeal. So there are like, I talk to women in their 40s that are like still playing Nancy Drew games because they really like the character. They really like the storylines. Um, I There are fans all over the world. I <laughs> I like yeah, little research requests from like Australia and New Zealand and like, Poland. That's amazing. From people that are interested in these materials because they really mm-hmm. have loved the Nancy Drew and the Herner Active stuff so far. Um, I think at this point they've sold more than like 10 million Nancy Drew games and it oh is the number one mystery franchise in the PC game market and they're still making them today. So um, it's a pretty interesting company and the, again the games seem very fun. I know that um, our mutual friend Nicole is a big fan of the games. I think she might have played all of them. Um so, That's so cool. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So it's 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 nice to it's nice to hear that this character is still enduring and that there are yes, you know, modern ways to access these stories. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Thank you for adding that cuz I had no idea about it. Sidebar. Sidebar. Sidebar over. <laughs> um okay, so my quiz today is about famous fictional teens. Yes. Question number 1. This teen girl moved in with a bunch of older blue-collar roommates after she got kicked out of her house by her stepmom, whose bitchy best friend told her that the teen was prettier than her? Who is this famous teen? Question number two. This annoying teen made up a boyfriend named George Glass, very convincing, pouted, pulled stunts, and generally was the middlest of middle children in a house full of kids and a famous blended family. Who is this famous teen? Question number three. This group of physically talented teens have a secret. They have Morphon magic bodysuits that help them fight enemies like Burrito Bapulsa and also have Zords, powerful mega weapons that allow them to merge into a humanoid mega Zord. What is the name of this super group? Question number four. This super cool leather-clad Italian-American teen was actually played by a 30-year-old Jewish sweet pea who is currently America's favorite grandpa. Who is this famous teen? For extra points, give me the full name of this awesome teen. 
question number five. This smart teen was always the brains of the uh, hippie van. With her friends and a big hungry dog, they solved mysteries all over these United States by literally unmasking the culprits. Who is this bespectacled? Who is this bespectacled teen? Question number six. This stylish Nancy Drew-esque teen tries to help and subsequently develops a crush on the investigator looking into the murder of her friend, even though he's significantly older. Portrayed by Sherilyn Fenn, her eyebrows and amazing hair have influenced many 90s teens and beyond. Who is this crazy cool teen? Question number seven. If you love 80s rom-coms, then you definitely fell in love with this sweet, sensitive kickboxer with a fondness for Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. Who is this say anything teen? Question number eight. She's the blonde one in the three main characters in a long running comic book series and current gritty reboot on the CW. Her rival is the brunette, of course, for the affections of the red haired protagonist. Who is this comic book teen? Question number nine. I didn't see this millennial classic until last year, which I know is crazy considering the main character style ubiquity in my early teenhood. I could never pull off a yellow plaid miniskirt, though. Who is this popular teen played to perfection by Alicia Silverstone? And finally, question number 10. Depending on when you read this classic, the main character is either an icon of teenage rebellion and angst or an annoying little shit. Despite this, it's considered one of the best frickin' books you can catch. Who is this angsty teen? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. I'm a teenager. 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 Where would I want? Don't need shoes. This is great. Good. We'll see. I'm gl- we'll see. I, I mean, I'll try and give you some <laughs> clues if need be. All right. Question number one. This teen girl moved in with a bunch of older blue collar roommates after she got kicked out of her house by her stepmom, whose bitchy best friend told her that the teen was prettier than her. Who is this famous teen? <laughs> Snow White. It is Snow White. <laughs> she is the first and youngest official Disney princess. Capital D, capital P, TM, mm-hmm. trademark. Um, she is also canonically 14. Oh my God. Which makes the, yeah, which makes like the true love's kiss thing very gross. Uh, uh, question number two. This annoying team made up a boyfriend named George Glass. Very convincing. Pouted, pulled stunts, and generally was the middlest of middle children in a house full of kids in a famous blended family. Who is this famous teen? That's Jan Brady. That's Jan Brady. Um, she's portrayed by Eve Plum. Uh, she never had a boyfriend on her show, The Brady Bunch, which ran for five seasons between 1969 and 1974. I hated that show. Oh, yeah. It was just like a bunch of do-gooder kids. Ugh, it was awful. We used to watch it on Nick at Night. And it was so annoying. <laughs> I hated it. 
Uh, question number three. This group of physically talented teens have a secret. They have Morphon magic bodysuits that help them to fight enemies like Rita Repulsa and also have Zords, powerful mega weapons that allow them to merge into a humanoid megazord. What is the name of this supergroup? They were the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Very good. Wow. Yes. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers or just Power Rangers. I would have taken that as well. Um, so the entertainment and merchandising franchise was built around a live action superhero television series based on the Japanese Tokusatsu franchise, Super Sentai. Uh, the first Power Rangers entry, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, debuted on August 28th, 1993, and helped launch the Fox Kids programming block of the 1990s, during which it catapulted into popular culture, along with a line of action figures and other toys by Bandai. Every single one of those action figures was in my house growing up. Uh, yeah, they that does not mine. surprise me in the least. No, of but. course not. Uh, by 2001, the media franchise had generated over $6 billion with a B in toy sales. I remember my sister and I would wait for the bus on the corner of our street, and there was a little boy who lived in the house at the corner, and he would watch Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and his living room window was, like, facing the street, and we would crawl up onto their, <laughs> <laughs> onto their like, doorstep and like <laughs> lean up and see if we can see what episode he was watching. It was definitely, you know, it was not legal. Okay. Question four, this super cool leather clad Italian American teen was actually played by a 30 year old Jewish sweet pea who is currently America's favorite grandpa. Who is this famous teen for extra points? Give me the full name of this awesome teen. Oh, is this, um, is this the Fonz? Arthur Fonzarelli. Arthur Fonzarelli. Very good. Um, Happy Days ran from 1974 to 1984, which means Henry Winkler was 40 when the show ended. (laughs) Still playing a teen at 40. So, I mean, he could do it. He is the cutest thing. He is the best at Twitter. Like this summer, I guess he took, (laughs) uh, he took a fishing trip up to Idaho and every day he would post a picture of the fish that he caught on to Twitter. He has like, the man has millions Aww. of followers and everyone was like, great fish. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful catch. What a great day you're having. It's like, it was so cute. It was I'm very glad, adorable. I'm glad we've all decided that, that he's perfect. He is. He's wonderful. He's, and apparently from all accounts, he is clearly like the nicest, oh, kindest yeah. man in Hollywood. Everyone says so. So I will believe it. Question number five. This smart teen was always the brains of the uh, hippie van. With her friends and a big hungry dog, they solved mysteries all over these United States by literally unmasking the culprits. Who is this bespectacled teen? That's Velma Dinkley. It is Velma Dinkley. Good job. Apparently, she was born Velma von Dinkenstein and emigrated to the U.S. from Germany as revealed in the movie Scooby-Doo, Franken-Creepy. So that's something about Velma Dinkley. Interesting. Yeah. German American. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question number six. This stylish Nancy Drew-esque teen tries to help and subsequently develops a crush on the investigator looking into the murder of her friend, even though he's significantly older. Portrayed by Sherilyn Fenn, her eyebrows and amazing hair have influenced many 90s teens and beyond. Who is this crazy cool teen? I'm going to say this is from Twin Peaks, but I don't know the character. You, I'll give you half a point for that. So it is, <laughs> it is from Twin Peaks. Um, her name is Audrey Horn. Okay. She's, she's kind of like the bad girl of Twin okay. Peaks. Because Laura Palmer's the one that died. Laura Palmer's the one that died. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, apparently Kyle McLaughlin was dating their co-star Laura Flynn Boyle during the show. And when the writers brought up this potential love story between Audrey and agent Cooper, Lara Flynn Boyle was like, uh, no, that's not happening. And so <laughs> like Sherilyn Fenn had to like get rejiggered into something else. And you can see, you can like between season one and season two, you can see that they were like building toward Audrey and agent Cooper kind of getting oh, together. Okay. And then by the second season, she was like shuffled <laughs> off to do something else. <laughs> like, good series. I rewatched it. It's excellent. If you like weird stuff which Julia does not. Okay. Question number seven. If you love eighties rom-coms like Julia does, then you definitely fell in love with this sweet, sensitive kickboxer with a fondness for Peter Gabriel's in your eyes. Who is this say anything teen? Oh, it was just in my head. Is it Lloyd? Yes, it is Lloyd. Do you remember his last name? Joe. Dobler. Yes. Dobler. Lloyd Dobler. Very good. Um, Say Anything was actually Cameron Crowe's directorial debut in 1989. Um, It's a great movie. It's very sweet. It really, um, it's a good 80s romantic comedy to watch and like remember what it's like to be a teen. It definitely is like, Mm. for me, that's like what it was like to be a teen. Uh, Question number eight. She's the blonde one in the three main characters in a long running comic book series and current gritty reboot on the CW. Her rival is the brunette, of course, for the affections of the red-haired protagonist. Who is this comic book teen? This is Betty? Yep. I don't know her last name. (laughs) Betty Cooper. I'll give you Betty because that's, you know, it's, you know, Betty and Veronica. Um, This is from the Archie comics. They ran from 1941 until 2015, where it was promptly rebooted with a new character design aesthetic and a more mature story format and scripting aimed for older contemporary teenage and young adult readers. (laughs) Um, probably because I think it was around the same time that they were going to reboot it to Riverdale mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on the CW. Um, question number nine, I didn't see this millennial classic until last year, which I know is crazy considering the main character style ubiquity in my early teenhood. I could never pull off a yellow plaid miniskirt though. Who is this popular teen played to perfection by Alicia Silverstone? That's Cher Horowitz. It is Cher Horowitz. Um, as you may know, Clueless was based on the Jane Austen classic, Emma, which some people might not know, but listeners of this show will know. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, question number 10, depending on when you read this classic, the main character is either an icon of teenage rebellion and angst or an annoying little shit. Despite this, it's considered one of the best fricking books you could catch. Who is this angsty teen? Oh, he just, oh, just freaking loves catching that rye. <laughs> uh, catching all that rye. Holden Caulfield. It is Holden Caulfield. So between 1961 and 1982, The Catcher in the Rye was the most censored book in high schools and libraries in the United States. Why? I I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember like what was I, controversial he's like, about that. Like a disrespectful kid. Like, I don't know. Maybe because there's talk of like suicide. It seems like oh, very. Okay. Yeah, I can see but that. But that's like, I mean, there's, there's lots of books that t- <laughs> like, especially for young adults, like every other book is about suicide or drug use, yeah. you know, at least, you know, between the eighties and nineties. So strange. Um, in 2009, the year before he died, Salinger successfully sued to stop a U.S. publication of a novel that presents Holden Caulfield as an old man. Hmm. So the novel's author, Frederick Colting, commented, call me an ignorant Swede, but the last thing I thought possible in the U.S. was that you banned books. Turns out, sir. Well, copyright. You were, yeah. <laughs> um, so 
the issue is complicated by the nature of Colting's book, um, which was called 60 Years Later, Coming Through the Rye, um, because it it is similar and has can, been compared to fan fiction. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where like the copyright thing kind of gets a little fuzzy because um, fan fiction, uh, no legal action is usually taken against fan fiction because it is rarely published commercially and thus involves no profit. Right. Um, so I, th- I think that, I don't know. It was like a weird thing, but anyway, it didn't happen. It All didn't you get need to do is change the, the character's name. Honestly, like that's <laughs> how, that's how like all of these weird ass fan fictions get turned into like best-selling novels and yeah. things like, um, 50 shades of gray was just twilight fanfic with different characters names. Yeah. And it was not good. It was not good. <laughs> I mean, controversial opinion. I don't, but I don't think any of our listeners are going to be tweeting at us for that. Scene. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. So that was my quiz. Good job. You know your teens. Nice. You know your fictional teens. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I love a teen drama. Yes. I love a. I love a rom com. You know, of mm. course. Yes. Um, I love literary characters. You know. Yeah. There you go. You know, I got it's all the three is, of those mixes. This is good. my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. haven't seen. You Twin did a Peaks. great job. Twin Peaks is good. You may not like it. It's very like oh, I know I wouldn't campy. like it. That's why I no, haven't you would watched not like it. <laughs> and then there's like, and then like halfway through, there's like a super ele- a supernatural mm-hmm. element that gets like an, introduced. And that's when when yeah, I started I watching lost. it the first time, yeah. I stopped. Yeah. Because once the red room came in, and the little man came mm-hmm. in with like I don't need that. talking backwards. Yep, yep, yep. No, thank yep, you. Yes, yes, yep, yep. I was like, nope, I can't no. watch this alone. There is a psych episode that, that, you know, in the later seasons of Psych, they're able to, like, pay homage to, like, a lot of... So good. Like, you know, mystery um, casts and shows and mm-hmm. influences and stuff. And they do a Twin Peaks episode. And I, that's, the about twin, as, that's about the as twin, twin Peaks, Peaks as I need to get. Yeah. The Twin Peaks-esque episode of Psych, which um, uh, what Sherilyn Fenn mm-hmm. actually guest starred in. Yep. And she still looks great. Um that's that was very good. I laughed through that entire thing because I watched Psych just after we finished Twin Peaks, and so it was like fresh in <laughs> fresh my in mind, there. and everything mm-hmm. was very good. So, all right. Well, thanks so much for listening, you guys. Make yes. sure that you pick up a Nancy Drew book soon. Maybe you'd be surprised at how well it holds up, or not. Probably, yeah. Not, let's be honest. And have a have a wonderful Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, if you. Uh, need a refresher we have a Halloween episode that we did a couple we years do. back we'll just share that info again whenever it comes around in case in case you need to add something else to your um, to your podcast queue exactly and I do not remember a single thing what we talked about in that episode because it was like four years ago how long ago was that uh, Maeve wrote a lot of it and then we added some stuff about like movie monsters and things like that in there oh right right yeah. right, right, right it was yes. fun yeah okay I, I trust you maybe okay. I'll listen to well, it again maybe Lauren will listen to it I guess I'm doing that. (laughs) All right. Happy Halloween. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.